We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. programs only for PAs, a niche for folks who want to increase their education toward a doctoral level, either in the development of uh, education or leadership or even professional practice. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 54. Today, we speak with Dr. Randy Danielson, who is a professor and director of the Doctor of Medical Sciences program in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the Arizona School of Health Sciences, A.T. Still University in Mesa, Arizona. Dr. Danielson is one of the pioneers of PA practice in the state of Arizona and a well-regarded national leader who has contributed so much to the profession and to health education as well. He has served as a primary care PA, a program director, a college dean, a president of both the Utah Academy of PAs and the Arizona State Association of PAs. He was also the chair of the Arizona Regulatory Board for PAs and is a retired United States Air Force and Army National Guard Lieutenant Colonel. In 2015, he received the Eugene A. Stead Award of Achievement by the American Academy of PAs, and he has published over 20 peer-reviewed journal articles, 30 journal editorials, five book chapters, and his own co-authored book on precepting by Jones and Bartlett. It is an honor to bring his story to our podcast, and as always, you can learn more about our guests at papathpodcast.com. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to hear your story and learn about all of the great things that you've done in the profession over the course of your career. Let's start by talking about your path to becoming a PA. Can you tell us what what led you down that path? Certainly. And again, thanks for the opportunity. Interestingly enough, I have no family members in medicine. There's nobody in my family in medicine. And and in fact, when I got out of high school and went to undergraduate, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. That was my claim to fame. And I saw the first year I, you know, I was an English major and a theater minor and not really sure what I wanted to do in life. And so I was so confused, um, I decided to join the Air Force. So I joined the Air Force. And because I was an English major, I said, I want to be in communications. And so they said, no problem. This is back in the late, late 60s, early 70s. And, and uh, so I got to, uh, to uh, Lackland Air Force Base. And on the third day, the uh, drill sergeant came up and said, OK, uh, two lines, the cooks in this line and medics in this line. And I said, <laughs> yeah. and I said, I said no, no, uh, I'm in communications. And you can imagine when the sergeant said, well, Mr. Communications, uh, you're going to be a cook or you're going to be a medic. And so I didn't want to be a cook, so I got in. The, I got in the medic line, and uh, so became became an Air Force medic. And uh, after that training, I went off to uh, uh, Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. You're well sure. aware of that that Air yep. Force Base. And ran across this staff sergeant uh, who was my uh, my uh, person who took charge of me. 
And he said to me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm going to do everything. And he says, okay, follow me. And he took me under his wing and spent a week in the shot clinic and a week in the lab. And, and uh, he just took me under his wing. And, and after about six months, uh, get me in the ER and then flight surgeon's office and then in the physical exam section. And after two or three years of that, uh, I learned about this, uh, this new concept of physician assistant, or actually I learned about the MedEx program at the University of Utah and mm-hmm. thought that might be something that I wanted to do. And so I applied and I was lucky enough to get in class four of the Utah MedEx program. So that, that was, uh, you know, in those days, we had no clue, as you know, what the profession was all about or what it was going to be. It was really going to be up to us to decide what that was. And I was fortunate enough to to uh, to go to Utah. And then when I graduated, um, uh, worked at a small rural town in Utah called Kearns, Utah, for the first five years. So okay. that was that was the quick story, the Reader's Digest version of yeah. become, becoming a PA. Yeah, so it's interesting because we had Ruth Balwigan back uh, yeah, yeah. in the beginning of uh, or season two, and she talked about that. She talked about how medics had supported the development of the program in Utah, and and I think at uh, Charles Drew, and so that that's interesting to tie that story together. So you practiced for five years in primary care, rural medicine, family medicine out in Kearns. What was your next step? Yeah, I wanted to to do something more. So uh, at that time, I packed up my family and we we decided to move to Phoenix, Arizona. I enjoyed Arizona when I was in the Air Force at uh, Luke Air Force Base. So we moved there and I went to work for uh, uh, an HMO for a number of years and uh, then for Maricopa County in their primary care clinics. And uh, uh, and then what what's now called Cigna or was called Cigna then, um, another HMO. And so, you know, I did over the next 20 years, you know, primary family practice, uh, did some emergency medicine in some of the ERs in the in the city and then some Ahmed. And uh, and also I did some asthma, allergy and immunology over those over those next 20 years in Arizona. So you were in Arizona at the beginning of the profession here. And you definitely got really well involved in the state organization and also in the the licensure and regulation part. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, when I moved to Arizona in 1979, uh, they'd been in existence. The the state association had been in existence probably four or five years, and uh, they were just developing some enabling legislation. And and in fact, early on. You had to decide whether you were going to be an allopathic PA or an osteopathic PA. So they had two different boards. The state association started lobbying and uh, uh, in terms of combining those boards. So early on, we developed the joint board on the regulation of PAs. And okay. at that time, it was like 20 members made up of allopaths and osteopaths and no PAs. They had uh, ex officio PAs. But, you know, we kept working with the legislature and had some wonderful uh, legislators that really supported us, and then years later w- was able to develop what now is the Arizona Regulatory Board on, of PAs that is uh, PA specific: five PAs, two MDs, two DOs, and two members at large. Okay. So yeah, uh, and you know, participating in a state organization is was so essential then as it is now in terms of getting things done. And and, uh, and at that time, we probably had. Two or three hundred PAs in the state, and now we're well over three or four thousand. That's amazing. I, I think about the time when one of my mentors in Illinois encouraged me to to support the Illinois Academy of PAs, and 
there were probably 12 people out of the, I don't know, six, 700 PAs in the state that actually were involved. And it's crazy to think about this because our destiny is controlled by that activity. You really need to be educating and advocating for your profession to the legislature, not only to maintain what you have, but to gain additional autonomy and practice uh, rights. So uh, kudos to you and everybody else that's been involved in ASAPA. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was fun. It's it's not something that you had to make a conscious decision. It was something you just did because the your future was right there in front of you. And, and you, like you said, you wanted to be responsible for your future rather than having somebody else be responsible for it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I always think about Don Morton Rias, who says it's uh, better to be at the table for dinner than be on the menu. So well, well said. Yes. Yeah. Well, good. So, Randy, you you've got 20 plus years of clinical experience at this point. What led you to join the academic world? Another great question. I, I was involved early on also with the American Academy of PAs early on a number of committees and on the board of directors. And I ran across a, a wonderful lady by the name of Marvis Larry, who was the program director at Wichita State University. And uh, she was saying one day, you know, Randy, we'd love to have you come out to Wichita, Kansas. Uh, I didn't know where that was. Um, huh. And and, uh, and and come work for us. And I thought, well, what an opportunity. So I applied and, and was accepted. And I took my family. We moved out to Wichita, Kansas and, and uh, worked at the PA program there for, for a year. And mm-hmm. after about a year, I get a call from the PAs in Arizona who said, hey, we're bringing a PA program to Arizona from, at that time, it was the Kirksville College of Osteopathy medicine and starting a PA program and we want you to come back and help us run it. So I talked to my kids and they started packing right then. They said, we <laughs> wanted to go back to Arizona. And uh, Marvis Larry was a wonderful mentor of mine and gave me the opportunity to come back to Arizona. So, you know, uh, Rick Davis and I really were the primary faculty members of starting what was called then the PA program at the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine Southwest Center. It was actually on the campus of Grand Canyon University. And, wow. Uh, so we we started the program, and then after a couple of years, it, we changed the name to the Arizona School of Health Sciences. And in 1999, the college actually became a university, uh, you know, under the auspices of the Higher Learning Commission. It became A.T. Steele University. So a little history there, but uh, yeah, we had a little uh, building on Grand Canyon to start our, our first program. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. I remember uh, learning about that because I graduated from osteopathic uh, medical school. Um, you know, Midwestern University, which had been similar to Kirksville. It was the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine first. And then when they started bringing in the other health professions, they turned that into a university. And then, of course, came down to join you down in, in the uh, Phoenix area on the opposite side of town shortly thereafter. So, yeah. Well, I, I guess uh, the Arizona School of Health Science is a little bit easier to get on a shirt than what they called it previously. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we actually had some colors. We had some great colors for our shirt. Um, you know, it was actually red and white and blue. And I guess we we upset a bunch of folks down at the University of Arizona. So we changed our colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that that can happen. I get that. <laughs> so you you and Rick started the program down there. You You get it going. And at some point in time, you get an opportunity to become the dean of the college. So tell us about that transition. 
Yeah, Rick, Rick, after a number of years, um, uh, decided to go off uh, and go back home to Florida and became the program director of Nova Southeastern University and later dean. But so I, I filled his shoes as chair for a couple of years. And in 2004, the Arizona School of Health Sciences had grown. We had started with PA, PT, OT and what was called sports healthcare. And uh, when we got out to the new campus and then we became AT Steel University, they decided to to create a dean because there was no dean prior to that time. So they created that position and and I applied for that and was fortunate enough to become dean in 2004. And really was at that time, it was only KCOM and us as part of AT Steel University. And Mm -hmm. uh, so my job was to help grow that school. And since that time, we added audiology programs and then we started adding the post-professional programs. So um, after a while, there were five disciplines and about 14 different programs. So it grew very quickly, and and uh, so I had to I had to learn how to be an academic dean, you know, sort of like being thrown in the water and learn how to swim. Yeah, there weren't. I mean, back in two thousand four, there weren't that many in PA that had risen to a dean of a college at that point. It might have been Rick, you, maybe, I don't know, maybe Don Morton Rise at yep. that point. Yep, Don um, Don Don was a, a dean at that very same time. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's impressive. Obviously, one of the things I've learned from being an associate dean is that the dean's office is always being pressured to look for new revenue streams. When I think about this connection with Rick Davis now makes a lot of sense to me because the two institutions that really pioneered doctorally trained PAs and, you know, a postgraduate doctorally trained track was Nova Southeastern and AT Still, right? Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, uh, uh, becoming a dean is a, a wonderful opportunity if you ever if you get the chance, um, but uh, but also going with that is a lot of responsibility, particularly with multi disciplines, and also uh, particularly if it's if you're working for a, a private uh, not for profit organization where 85-90 percent of the revenues is tuition driven, yeah. and so it really comes down to not only providing quality education to the disciplines, you know, but having enough seats, you know, and, and at some point you have to look at increasing the number of seats to be able to have the kind of revenue that you need to run an effective program. It's kind of a catch-22. You know, you want to keep the faculty student ratio uh, workable so that you do a good education, but you also want to keep the lights on. And uh, I've always said the, the further up the ladder you go, the further away from the classroom you are. And that's not good because we all love uh, working with our students. But as you said a minute ago, it's it's nice to be at the table. Uh, and, and I was uh, able to help develop at AT Still our first council of deans because we started, we had the medical school, they had us, and then we started another, another medical school and another dental school. So pretty soon uh, we had five deans. And so we created a council of deans and it became a very important organization looking at, you know, how do we work together to make sure that the that that we get enough revenue for all of us to be successful, you know, in our discipline. So, um, yeah, it, uh, it it was a, a wonderful opportunity to start, you know, start at ground level. Yeah, yeah. So so often in my career, I think about my colleagues who have been frustrated by their budgets. They believe, and you know, some programs do have this kind of opportunity, but very few do. They believe that. Every dollar of that revenue from tuition should go back to the program. And they don't see the benefit of the larger institution having some tax to help the institution keep the lights on and the marketing and security and all those other things. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that in terms of how you navigate that. 
quick little story. And if, if Rick Davis ever listened to this, he'll confirm it. When, when I was the associate director of the program and Rick was the director and he came to us one year and said, well, we're going to add five more students, five more seats in the class. And I was upset. And I, I actually wrote a letter of resignation and took it, gave it to him. I says, I can't teach five more people. You know, I don't have enough faculty. And he took the letter and put it in his drawer and said, go back to your office. We're going to be fine. And then the next year I'm in his shoes. And then the year after that, or a few years after that, I'm the dean. And, and you're right. Um, you have to look at the big picture. And I was fortunate because I created a, a uh, the chair's council and we would meet um, and, you know, once a year looking at budget. Budgets. And first thing you do is you turn in your budget and you turn in your capital requests. And all the time, most of the time, um, once you get to the table, you've asked for five times more than the available money. And so sure. what do you do? You, you can fight between one another. You know, you can argue. But but what I really liked is the chairs got together and said, OK, this is why I need this particular FTE or why I need this particular capital expenditure. Uh, and the other folks would say, well, you know, I could postpone what I needed for a year so you can have this. And uh, and it turned out really well. Um, so we go back to the provost and the president, you know, with a recommendation that's workable for everybody. That's the only way it'll work. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, somebody else above you has to make that decision for you. And they're happy to do it. So um, yeah. I, I call this uh, participatory leadership. Sure. And when you say capital budgets, uh, as I understand capital budgets, traditionally, that's going to be uh, when you're looking to build space, you need some significant equipment expenses to deliver a different, like ultrasound machines or things like that. It's not typically exactly. going to be related to your personnel, correct? Exactly. Yeah. The, okay. Probably the biggest expense, as you know, in your budget is personnel. Um, and, yeah. and the and the second bi biggest uh, uh, is is capital expenditures, like you mentioned. You know, we need we need more equipment. We need some more uh, high fidelity sim men. Of course, the physical therapists want their, you know, the, their kind of equipment, and the occupational therapists need equipment. You know, so you have to you have you have to work that out. And it it's uh, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, but to your point, you said uh, one of the better parts of being a dean is that you're at the table and you, you're having an opportunity to be innovative. And one of the things you chose to do was to take on these postdoctoral programs. So let's talk about kind of the impetus for that and how that started for you. Yeah, I guess there's two points. One is the first thing we started in, related to PA was um, because we started as a master's program. Um, there were still all of those folks out there like myself who graduated from a certificate program or or a bachelor's program that now wanted to get their master's degree. And so we created a, a, what we call the advanced PA program, uh, much like Nebraska did at the same time, if you remember, and developed an online program for practicing PAs, a pathway to get their master's. And it was very successful. In fact, um, we just sunsetted that program this past year. It's out, you know, after 10, 12, 15 years, it met its purpose. Well, the same thing occurred uh, when I was dean and we were looking at uh, the health professions, uh, particularly PAs, but others who um, wanted to move into getting a doctoral degree, but didn't want to do a traditional route of PhD or EDD because A, uh, it, it, that you know, that's four or five years of your life. Uh, you know, uh, over a hundred thousand dollars plus, and you just wanted to do something that was going to uh, give you an opportunity to to get a degree in a shorter period of time that that perhaps was more professional in nature. Anyway, 
we actually stole the idea from Rick Davis at, at Nova Southeastern, uh, who had created a Doctor of Health Science program. And uh, I called him and, and he shared with us uh, his successes. And so we developed that program and uh, created it, you know, uh, a 50 credit hour program over three years for health professionals who wanted to get a doctorate, particularly PAs, PTs at that time, although they, they've moved to DPT, you know, occupational therapists, lab tech, social workers, all, all those kind of folks who wanted to do it in health science. And it was very successful and continues to be successful. In fact, that program now has been moved over to um, our sister school, the College of Graduate uh, uh, Health Studies. And, and you were doing online education way, way before anybody else. Yeah. Again, we, we, we sort of patterned our programs after Nova Southeastern and Rick Davis, and it, it worked well. It was, someone could say, sort of like walking into a buzzsaw. I mean, you know, you had to learn quickly, particularly with technology. I mean, even 15 years ago, technology was a big problem. Uh, it's, it mm-hmm. worked sometimes. It didn't work sometimes. What learning platform is the best? And, you know, if you had the right bells and whistles so that you had the right platform, number one, then you had to you had to market it to the right people. And then you had to figure out what the prerequisites were. And then you got to hire the faculty who's willing to teach online. And all, almost all of them are, you know, full-time clinicians somewhere else. So a mm-hmm. lot of work to do it. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah, we've we've been able to, to do that over the last 10 or 15 years. And, and, and I'll be honest, as terrible as COVID was, the one silver lining is everyone's learning to to teach and uh, online. Yeah, I think it's that was a huge, huge change for all of us. And it is probably the only good thing about COVID is that we we were forced to equip ourselves with new tools on how to meet students where they need to be met. Yeah. So how, how many graduates have you put through the doctoral programs uh, to date, roughly? You're speaking about the, the Doctor of Health Science program, the, the one we created? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gosh, um, uh, probably that program now has probably has 2,500, 3,000. Um, That's amazing. Graduates, you know. And uh, of course, the Doctor of Medical Science, uh, another topic, is a fairly new phenomenon uh, in the country. And we could talk about that. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. What's your take on the DMSE? Well, well obviously, I'm biased. This idea is a product of uh, Dr. Bert Simon, who uh, was chair of our PA program, and about five years ago started saying, we want to put together a online doctoral program, a professional degree for PAs who don't want to do the long route with PhD and EDD, but they want to get something that's going to help them in their practice, in their leadership roles, in their education roles. Uh, and he and his faculty put that together, and we, we jumped through all the hoops with the regional accreditor and the state accreditor, and we launched that program in 2018. In fact, uh, I stepped down as dean to take the reins of that, and Bird stepped down as program director to become the associate director. And the whole idea was to find a niche for PAs, because this program is only for PAs, a niche for folks who want to increase their education uh, toward a doctoral level, either in the development of uh, education or leadership or even professional practice or other areas that, that's going to make them um, more employable and give them that doctoral ticket. And, you know, our values for the program has always been we want to make sure that it has doctoral rigor, that it's student-centric because these are our colleagues, and that, yeah. number three, that the degree means something. And uh, so that when they graduate with that, that degree, that it means something. 
And at that time, there were just a number of us out there. There Obviously, there was a Lincoln Memorial in Tennessee and Lynchburg and A.T. Still. It was really this, the three programs that started at DMSC. And since then, there's been five or six others, including Rocky Mountain and Butler. And uh, I probably can't remember all of them, but many folks who are now you know following that same pattern, trying to get uh, our PA colleagues sure. to have a ticket out there. And and these are still postgraduate doctoral trainings. It's not not intended, at least, to be part of an entry level perspective. Right. The, the whole the whole concept was for it to be post professional and for practicing PAs or even retired PAs who maybe wanted to uh, once they've retired from practice want to come back to you know academia. So all of the programs that are out there now are post professional programs and are they're recruiting. Everything from new graduate PAs to PAs that have been in practice 30, 40 years. We had a student who was 70 who graduated from our program last year. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. What a great story. Because I think every colleague I know who has done that program or done the Lynchburg program or others, they all come back with new skills, new perspectives. The value they bring to programs and I'm sure to the clinics where they work is really, really impressive. So congratulations on a really thoughtful approach. Well, and thank you. And you know, the the future of that particular degree is in the hands of the graduate. And anecdotally, what I'm thrilled about is once our our PAs graduate from the DMSC and they come back and tell us what they've done. I've moved into this role. I've moved into academia, or I've moved into a leadership position, or into the you know the C suites, or I've done this or I've done that. And that's the future and the value of the degree. What I tell applicants for the program is, you know, I don't, I don't want you to give me your tuition and just because you want to come and put a doctor after your name, let's make it worth something and mean something when you get out there. And they're doing that. And, and, and I'm, I couldn't be prouder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's been, there's been conversation in our profession about an entry-level doctorate and that drum has been kind of beaten on and off for a while. The doctoral summit was, I think in 2008 originally. And now we have some colleagues who have really been stepping on the, the the conversation again to see if we can move into a doctoral trained entry level PA. I'd love to get your take on that and and what are the pros and cons from your perspective. <laughs> well, I was going to be trite and say, how about those cardinals? Um, but, <laughs> but, but but because that is the controversial question of the day. So you asked for it. I'll give you my opinion. First of all, let me tell you what my opinion is worth. I now represent. 6.5 of the PA profession percent of the PA profession, and that's PAs over 65 years of age. So, <laughs> so that that's who I represent. And so, the future of our profession is really in the hands of our current students and our new grads. So, but I do have an opinion, and that is that a doctoral entry level degree for PAs is inevitable. Um, I think the train has left the station, and we have to decide whether we're going to be on it or not. I do think it's going to be the way the future. I think it's going to take five, 10 years you know, for that to happen. And if you look back to the 80s, we had the same argument with them going from bachelor's to master's. But we, but we, have, we have the same barriers today that we had then. And that is, what does a doctoral uh, curriculum for PAs do to the length of the program? And we have to decide what that's going to be. Number two, we have to decide what the prerequisites are for that and how we include that doctoral rigor in the PA program for it to be credible. And lastly, and probably most importantly, how do we continue to recruit diverse students? 
We don't do a great job of that now. And if we move to a doctoral entry level, it's again going to disenfranchise, you know, diverse students. We have to find a way today and in the future for that not to happen, because I think that's an important uh, component of our profession, not only the PA profession, but all the healthcare professions. We need to do better. So, and, and lastly, you know, the reason for doing this besides getting a good education is parity um, with our colleagues in the healthcare, uh, not only nurse practitioners, but our physician colleagues. So I think parity is going to be important. I know there's a lot of conversation. I know the, that uh, in 2023, there's going to be PAEA has, has uh, another uh, group getting together to take a look at recommendations. And we have to answer those questions before we do it. And we should do that in a thoughtful manner. I participated in that 2008 doctoral summit, and I thought it was really well done in the sense that, you know, they, they brought in other professions, other perspectives. There was a lot of data to review. It was a very well-coordinated meeting. And at that point, the feeling was, based on the learnings from uh, nursing, PT, OT, et cetera, was that the main group that really benefited from a doctorally trained whatever were the universities, because they were the ones bringing in another year of tuition. and. I find it interesting because as I was going through the the University of Arizona faculty curriculum process, the first comment that I received from my colleagues at Arizona was 108 credit hours is a doctoral program. What what are you doing here? You know, and and they're right. But the content that we have to teach to prepare our students to practice medicine as part of a team, it's voluminous. And so to your point, I think how do we how do we navigate that? You know, do we just add a year? That seems just too simple and also maybe not appropriate for the cost of training. But then what do we take out? Well, I wish it was a simple question with a simple answer, but it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, currently, and we rightfully so, we have the ARC PA standards, you know, in terms of the, of the requirements of a quality PA program. And, and most of those are 24 to 27 months just to meet the basics for a primary care PA. Yet we know when our PA colleagues get out and practice, over 70% of them are now working in specialty practices or subspecialty yeah. practices. And the whole onboarding for that is, is another issue. You know, so it really comes down to the length of the program. And, and I've had the same issue that people say, you know, my program is 110 credit hours. Just, you know, just give me that doctorate degree. I earned it. You know, we mm-hmm. can we can argue the difference between doctoral education and PA education, but I think there has to be a, you know, some place in the middle, and maybe it has to deal with with accreditation and whether we're going to move to you know requiring specialty education. Another controversial issue from even 10, 12 years ago with the NCCPA was uh, we like to maintain our generalist bent as PAs, yet most of us are working in a specialty practice. And we're asked, if you work in endocrinology, how do I know that you're competent in endocrinology because yeah. you took a generalist uh, exam? So all of those things play a role in this thing moving to a doctoral level. Do we want to follow the same plan that our physician colleagues have, where there's a, the intra-level program and then the residencies? into certain mm-hmm. areas. And uh, I know that people will say, bite your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, Randy, like the, the CAQ process, when that first came out, everybody was convinced, well, not everybody, but many people were convinced that that was going to kill our profession by putting us into a residency state. And to date, that hasn't happened. I think folks that have ended up in those specialties have sought out a specialty exam to demonstrate competency and also be able to to garner better wages in a situation and keeping up with their colleagues that have specialized in those areas. So 
Uh, yeah, it is. It's an interesting challenge, right? It's it's very complex when you think about it. Absolutely, and I'm not advocating that we that we have specialty programs, you know, entry level programs. That would make no sense. Um, yeah, you know. But if you look out there, if you look online right now, there are uh, well over eighty post professional fellowships or residencies for PAs. Mm-hmm. Everything you know, from emergency medicine to orthopedics to, you know, psychiatry, all of those things that many of our colleagues are feeling that that's an important thing for their future is to get that advanced training, if you will, to to get into a particular job. And then when you get that niche in that job, it does become harder to move away into a different into a different field. Do you think that the you know, some of the programs have marketed their doctoral, uh, their DMSE to residency programs as a dual kind of opportunity. And I've seen residents, particularly, uh, I'm thinking about San Bernardino and the ER residency, where they go to to get their DMSE while they're in the residency and graduate with a doctorate as part of their postgraduate training program. Do you think that might be the wave of the future? I do. We're we're certainly doing that. We're reaching out to our our colleagues who are the directors of of the fellowship or the residency. And it makes sense to me that if you're, let's take, for example, a a surgical PA who does a year in surgery, um, seems to to me that that year could be part of advanced standing in a DMSC program. And then that person could fulfill the rest of the curriculum, you know, the, the core courses that's required, you know, for that DMSC. So, I think that ought to be worth something. Uh, yeah. Getting the certificate is good, and also that experience is good. But in my mind, it would be nice to have a doctoral uh, component of that so that when they graduated, um, they also got the DMSC. Yeah. Well, Randy, I appreciate your time. I, before we go, I want to ask you one more question, then then open it up to you if you have any uh, additional thoughts, which is, you know, you have you have a longstanding history of leadership in our profession, both with state and national organizations. Uh, you've you've had the pulse of the profession for many many years. You you've contributed so much, and I'm I'm very grateful for your mentorship and and your contributions. The, as you look back, what are the things that you're most proud of uh, related to your role with the profession? Wow. First of all, thank you for your kind words. You know, I'm most proud in terms of my professional work of the development of of teams over the years um, where, you know, when I first got involved with the AAPA in 19, that would have been 97, we, we got a group of people together for the Public Education Committee and developed the first ever um, public service announcement for the profession. And it was a group of six people, our colleagues that sat around a table and, and started developing that. Today, that's doing PSAs are really easy, but back then it was hard and to get mm-hmm. that word out. So, and I use that as an example that when we as PAs stick together, um, we can have our differences, we can have our opinions about things, but it's still sitting around the table and finding ways to make things happen. And so I think things like in the early days of the AAPA, um, I'm very proud of the kind of work that we did. The development of House of Delegates was another one of those things. And I think the other thing that I'm most proud of from the profession is getting into education and uh, and being one of those pioneers that uh, sort of sort of break that bubble, moving up the, up the ranks in academia. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and I guess the third thing is just being thrilled to be part of creating the future of the profession by educating PA, st- PA students and watching yeah. what they do. I mean, you and I have been in education for a long time and we run across our, our grads and you go, my gosh, what great things they've done. And I think you've said, you said it the other day when we were speaking about standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, that continues to happen. And as long as we, we have those giants to stand on their shoulders and create new giants, we're going to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just last night, uh, University of Arizona had a, a welcome reception for the three new health professions programs that they're starting. And it was just amazing. I had so many graduates uh, that are in the Tucson area and other PAs that, you know, were interested in the the startup here. And uh, several of them were from my first class at Midwestern University as a director. And so to your point, I think there's nothing more rewarding than to see them grow as professionals after you've had a chance to to be a small part of their lives in their their career. Yeah, absolutely. I have a I have a great grandson who's now six years old, and I was talking to him when Phoenix last year, and he introduced me one day. This is my grandpa. He's a principal, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I I can do that. You are. You are. You're a principal leader in in a very big, important profession. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Is there anything else uh, that we didn't get a chance to talk about, Randy, that you'd like to share before we go? Well, first of all, thanks again for the opportunity and and uh, and thanks to the many colleagues of mine out there who've given me the opportunity to be, be part of a wonderful profession. I mean, I think for me, it's 48 years now. I keep telling people I started when I was 12, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, thanks to all my colleagues who have uh, accepted this, this uh, really shy kid from Idaho to be part of the profession, and it's been an honor. Yeah, well, thank you for all that you've done. And thank you for joining us today. I know that our listeners will be excited to hear your perspective. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Randy Danielson, for his time and his incredible service to the profession. The amount of things he has contributed towards our profession are too numerous to discuss in one podcast. But suffice to say, he has truly done it all. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Bridget Calhoun from Duquesne University. Dr. Calhoun shares her unique path to becoming a PA, her path to becoming an HIV researcher and expert in infectious disease. And we also talk about the program that she led for over 20 years that focuses on a high school to PA pathway. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.